Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. All right, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. For a large chunk of these older episodes, I've had to cut the original intros as part of a migration process. So all that means is we're going to get straight into the interview here with the name that you clicked on. No warm-ups, no preamble, just a straight one, two and in. You ready? One, two... Well, you know, I, I mean, I've been playing in bands since, um, you know, I was about 16, but I didn't really have the opportunity to tour until uh, we started Iron Sheik. Um, so I was like a little bit older, I guess, than your average, you know, DIY punk band. Like I was, you know, my late 20s, early 30s or whatever. Um, so, it, you know, and I think that's one thing for, you know, for younger people, it's usually a little bit easier to kind of, you know, pop in and out of like a restaurant job or, a, you know, uh, construction or whatever, you know, whatever, you know, you do that where you don't really care if you, 
You know, if mm-hmm. you lose that job to, to go on a two week tour and you come back or whatever, you're worried about it. You know, people live with their parents or whatever, you know, like just not as much responsibility. Um, so it was always a little bit rougher for me, but you know, we've always been fairly smart about touring. So, you know, in the beginning it was a lot of shorter trips and stuff like that. So it wasn't as big of an issue. Um, it wasn't really until the last, like, you know, five, six years or whatever that we were really touring, like, you know, hardcore. Um, and at that point it was almost already starting to be kind of self-sustaining. Um, you know, so I kind of luckily sort of, not entirely, but, you know, passed over that phase a little bit. And I wonder if Phil Douglas, obviously your guitarist in Iron Sheik, but guitarist of Latterman, Latterman toured a lot, or they seem to have toured a, a lot, from my knowledge. So he brought some experience with him? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We, you know, overall, the whole, the band in general got like a nice little, you know, head start as far as that kind of stuff goes. Um, you know, and also even, uh, you know, between Phil and, and uh, Mike, uh, just having a lot of contacts and, you know, stuff like that. Like Bruno. Yeah, uh, yeah, dumps, as we call them. You know, just having a lot of, yeah, you know, like people in his pocket from, you know, booking shows and doing the label and stuff. Uh, you know, all that made it a little bit easier for us to tour kind of right out of the gate. I'm in my late 20s now. I'm I'm 29. And I think if I started a band now, I would just want to be organized. You know, I think when you're younger, it's a lot easier to just, you know, forget about everything else and just do this one thing and be kind of immature about it. Well, you know, for me, it was like, like I said, it, you know, because I hadn't really done much of it, I was, you know, particularly gung ho to like do as much as we could and, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's hard even thinking back, you know, remembering exactly how, uh, how it all went down. But, um, we were also lucky, like one of our first tours was, down to fest so it was like you know we had a pretty much guaranteed good show some of the shows were kind of weird because it was like that that fest tour where it's you know tons and tons of bands all you know converging in the same spot at once so and what year was that uh you know i'm gonna say it was uh maybe 2010 2009 something like that i think that's when we met actually yeah yeah i believe so I remember I was fighting off jet lag and we were in this house and, and you guys rolled through <laughs> yeah. and it was like, oh, wow, we love that band. And I guess thinking of that time, there, there must have not been too much pressure. That seemed like a pretty fun tour down to a, you know, a fun festival. Yeah. You know, like, like the shows might not have paid as well or whatever, but there was a lot of people and like, you know, as far as like feeling encouraged to continue doing it, you know, definitely helped mm. in that in that respect. Had you started doing the illustration work that you do now? Were you, were you doing it around that time? Uh, not really, like a little bit. Uh, mostly, you know, when, when I was starting out doing that stuff, it was mostly just out of a function of doing it for my own bands. Um, I believe at that time, uh, I don't, I, I worked at a print shop for about eight years and I'm not, I'm not sure if I had been laid off already at that point i was either working there or i was working at a pizzeria it was one of the one of the two because i was that was the, what i did next i think i think i may have been at the pizzeria at that time because i think that made it a little bit easier for me to you know to be able to do things on a whim like that because it wasn't as 
much of a full-time, you know, job as the print shop job that I had had before that. The pizzeria was all right. It, it was uh, my my friend's uncle uh, owned it. So, you know, it was a little bit looser of a, of a deal than, you know, your average uh, pizza delivery job. Um, I probably made a couple bucks more than all their kids there did. And, uh, you know, didn't really have anybody riding my ass or anything like that. Um, and it was all right. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was as fun as like delivering pizza could be or whatever, I guess, you know, nothing, uh, nothing too crazy. I, I like, I always liked, uh, driving jobs. Like I, my, when I started at the print job, print shop job before that, um, it was doing deliveries. So, you know, I just being in the car and driving around was always like kind of a, you know, fairly chill experience as far as working goes. I'm I'm so content when I'm driving. I crack on the Tom Petty best of um and just just enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Um I was I was obsessed with talk radio for a while when I was driving a lot. Um <laughs> Is that sports talk radio? Uh more I don't know, more like shock jock kind of stuff. Stuff I probably honestly wouldn't listen to now. Um or would maybe even tell myself not to listen to that if I if I could, but uh there was like one you know talk radio show that just had a lot of like howard stern kind of you know type shows on it or whatever right he's a real thing howard stern we don't really have an equivalent yeah that's that's interesting i never really thought about that he's uh his thing is just shock value isn't it i mean i've been pretty shocked uh watching and listening to to some of his programs yeah he's actually i think not that i've listened to him now but he's like mellowed out a lot i believe He's pretty anti-Trump at this point, which is cool. Around that time, was there this kind yeah. of pressure on you to, I mean, did you put pressure on yourself to, to like find a career, I suppose, whilst juggling what I can only presume is, you know, something that came from a place of love. Playing in Iron Sheik was pure enjoyment. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I never really expected to be able to make uh, any kind of a living doing music. Um, so it always felt like, you know, a privilege or a, you know, something that I would act, you know, lose money on or, or whatever. And, you know, at the time it was worth it for me to do that. And we were lucky enough to, you know, be able to kind of, you know, start putting our energies into it relatively quickly. And even though, you know, like the, and the first few tours were pretty spaced apart. Like, I think we maybe only went out you know, once or twice the first, you know, couple of years that we had started doing it. Um, so it was sort of more like a vacation, if anything. Right. And did that change over over years to come, it being a vacation? Oh, yeah. I mean, for us, yeah. I'm, you know, we were lucky enough to, you know, once we started doing it, uh, you know, more uh, seriously or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, it, you know, it just, it worked out for us that we were able to, you know, we'd come home with some money and, you know, the, the more we went out, the, the longer I could go, uh, without having to work necessarily, you know, not, you know, obviously not the lap of luxury or anything like that, but I was paying, you know, paying my bills for the most part, or at least enough so that it, you know, it felt like it was worth pursuing, you know? Yeah. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, it's like, the the decision making of whether to pursue it or not that can be quite a daunting thing and potentially quite a scary thing but then when you when you do it when you commit yourself you still have to have this 20 percent flexibility of you know maybe it won't happen the way you want it to yeah i think so you, you 
if you're coming at it too serious out of the gate, um, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment, I think. Uh, you know, and, and also just, it's kind of corny to just be, you know, too much of a, of a pro dog about it, as, as we say. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, you know, I, surely there must be the danger of not taking it seriously enough. So by the time you realize maybe you actually should have taken the last few years seriously that, you know, now it's too late. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly a, you know, a, a pitfall. And I think, and again, like, like I said, with, with Phil and, and Dumps, especially like having a lot of different, you know, they both had toured a lot and more so on the like, you know, real serious DIY tip and, you know, having a couple of people who had that experience uh, almost enough to potentially become jaded by it, but not quite there. And then you had, you know, me at the time being relatively fresh to it. Um, you know, yeah. so we had to sort of, you know, a lot of the bases covered as far as like perspective goes on that sort of thing. And also, you know, again, we had a fairly hefty, uh, you know, network to kind of, like Dumps always had these contacts and it was, you know, he was always kind of right on the ball as far as booking stuff went and really right from the get-go when he joined the band, he just kind of took over on that front. And, you know, Phil had had the experience of, you know, going to Europe and, you know, doing kind of like a lot of the stuff that, you know, a lot of, you know, DIY bands don't get to do right away. Um, so, you know, we had, I think a pretty good perspective overall on like how, you know, like, like, as you say, like a little bit of the looseness, a little bit of the, you know, ability to take it more seriously, whether we were ready to or not. Not many people, I mean, you have to be pretty brave to start a punk rock band and just think you're going to do real well right away. And I wonder, like, how did it feel when, when you started and when people, I remember people picked up on Iron Sheik really quickly. I remember getting that 2009 demo, 2009 or 10 just before I was, you know, I bought the, you know, got the plane tickets for, for Fest that year. And instantly, it was an instant connection. And then seeing you at the Fest that, that year at the Bike Shack was incredible. You know, obviously, you'd connected with so many people very quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, like our, our first real tour was was down the Fest. And like, you know, the first Fest we played wasn't that crazy but it was probably the biggest show you know we had played as a band i mean uh the kickstand yeah and it was you know i mean it definitely was you know like the biggest show we ever played and i, I you know i think after the show we you know we sold a bunch of stuff and you know we were definitely like kind of blown away by it like you know our way making our way down we were like oh all right we made enough for gas you know oh we can go to the supermarket we got an extra you know 20 bucks or whatever um and it was definitely you know pretty tight and i think that I think that, you know, whatever we got for that show and then made it merch that night, like pretty much got us home, but we weren't really expecting to even be able to do that. So, you know, I, I think for me personally, like I skipped a lot of the real, not that I didn't, you know, not that we didn't do like pretty bare bones DIY touring, but I skipped a lot of the really like, uh, you know, we have to like max out this credit card just to make, you know, make it another 300 miles to get home or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing. I sort of skated over that part, luckily. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I mean, it was still, it was still pretty cool, you know, even playing local shows, you know, you maybe be lucky to get, you know, a couple people to buy a t-shirt or something. So having a little bit of a line at the end of the set was like, you know, 
was like pretty, uh, you know, pretty exciting. And then Not Like This came along. And for me, that was just one of those albums. I remember exactly where I was when I heard it for the first time. It sounds amazing. Phil did such a great job. I remember reading or hearing about that you recorded it from home and just, you know, all the bells and whistles around it and the guitar tones and, and the way it sounds is just so warm. It's like a giant hug, but it's also, it's, it's raging as well. And it, it still still holds up. What do you remember about that period of time? Just, you know, when that album was released? We did another fest tour right around the time the record came out. And then we did like our first like big, you know, like I think it was three weeks or something, which was pretty hefty for us. Um, and yeah, it seemed, you know, that, that tour went well. And like, I think we came home with a little bit of money in our pocket on that one. And I think that really kind of showed us that, you know, we could continue to, to keep doing it. And, and, you know, it would, it would, it would sustain itself to some degree. And having it released on Yo-Yo here in Europe meant that, you know, you were coming here, what, yeah. once, once or twice a, a year at points? Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, obviously this year, uh, things got a little crazy. But yeah, pretty much, like, if not every year, like every other year, uh, you know, we may have missed one or two here or there. But yeah, and that was, you know, Phil had known Jan for for years with, with Latterman. So that was like a pretty established relationship there too. Uh, by the time I had, you know, been involved with it. Um, so that was nice, you know. I mean, it's we love going out with him. It's always like, you know, especially now. I mean, I've, I've at this point, I've known him 10 years. And, uh, you know, it, it's there's something very comforting about, you know, going there and just knowing that Jan's going to take care of us. He's going to drive. He's going to, you know, talk to the crazy foreign people for us and, you know, just sort of deal with everything. And, and that was our first... Well, weirdly enough, sort of like our first taste of any kind of luxury on tour was like not having to drive and having somebody have our schedule set for us and, you know, telling us when we got to get up, when we got to be there and, you know, a lot stricter than we would be for sure. Um, and what we touched on earlier about the difference between US and, and European touring, one of the things is maybe you can't afford a driver in the US for, a, I don't know, a five week tour, but that's plausible in Europe. Yeah, I mean, luckily we can now, but yeah, I mean, it, it took a long time to get us to that point, you know. And having someone like Jan at Yo-Yo Records be able to speak the languages and drive must must be such a such a help. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm kind of you know, I, it's it's a it's a definitely uh, an ease to the culture shock to have somebody be like, all right, you don't tip in this country, or uh, you know, don't do this when you get to this person's house or, you know, whatever it is, just to, even if it's something, you know, kind of similar, you know, you're not going to like necessarily stick your, you know, foot in your mouth or whatever. Uh, Cause Jan's, you know, he's been doing it so long and he's been everywhere. When that first record, not like this came out, did you feel like you had a responsibility to the people putting out the records and the promoters putting on the shows? Um, in, in what sense? Uh, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily feel like we felt like a responsibility to it. I think it, it happened pretty organically where it was, you know, it aligned with what we wanted to do anyway. Um, you know, like I said, I hadn't toured. So like every opportunity to tour in the beginning was, 
you know, pretty exciting for me and, you know, in particular. Um, so just, you know, having more people be interested and, and knowing that, you know, the shows in this city and that city or whatever were like pretty much guaranteed to be good. Um, it definitely made all that a lot easier to kind of take on. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it just, it just happened, uh, you know, it just happened online with what we wanted to do at the time anyway. And so for you on a personal level, did the, uh, did the focus turn more onto touring and, and being in the band rather than working at home? I think once I, when we first started, I, you know, like I said, I believe I was working at the pizzeria. I think I was coming kind of in and out. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's honestly kind of hard to remember. Like it all sort of blurs together at a point. But I was, you know, I I know that I was definitely, you know, struggling to a point. But it was to me worth it. You know, like I'd have to, you know, kind of hustle to, you know, make my rent or whatever, and not exactly know where it was coming from. Uh, mm. you know, like not having a steady, uh, you know, paycheck in that sense, but you know the the trade-off of the freedom of it was enough to you know make it worth the the uncertainty for sure and is that still the case now uh yeah i mean to to some degree it's you know it for the most part we know when we go out you know we can you know looking at the numbers beforehand is a little bit easier it's like you know there's often a guarantee now um you know, like we can kind of be sure that, you know, you know, we get like ticket counts and stuff, you know, stuff that we never had in the, in the beginning where, you know, you can sort of gauge how things are going to go a little bit before, you know, they happen. So you can make an educated guess kind of like, Oh, if we go out for this long, we'll, you know, most likely make at least this much and, uh, you know, have some sense of, you know, what we'll come home with and sort of be able to plan around that a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, this year has shown that you can't rely on anything, you know, <laughs> so uh, obviously, you know, you could throw a monkey wrench into into the works and, uh, but. Would, a, would you know, for a portion of your year, you'd be relying on touring and the band for paying your rent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, probably probably more than anything else at this point, you know, it, it got to the point where we were able to, you know, really make it almost a completely full-time thing. Not, not entirely, but, um, I feel like a bit know. of a jerk asking you such blunt sort of financial questions, but <laughs> oh, I mean, it is, it, I mean, I do find it fascinating. Someone once told me that, you know, if you do something good, if you get to a certain level, you have to work twice as hard to stay there. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, especially in music, it's like you're at the whim of what people are interested in. Like somebody could lose interest in you just as quickly as they got into you. And, you know, having to, you know, even if it's in the back of your mind, sort of juggle the idea of like what, you know, what do people expect from us? What do people want to hear? What are people interested in at this time? And also balancing that with, you know, how how you want to write music and what you want to hear, what you want to express or, or whatever. And, and sort of reconciling the fact that, you know, that in, in some sense it's a commodity and, you know, you don't want it to become 
a thing where the money matters more than the creativity, you know? And that must be hard because, I mean, the mental stability must be tough. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and especially with, with the, the ever-changing models of, you know, streaming and, and like, how, how you get paid. And, you know, it used to be that, you know, bands made all their money touring and it's not even necessarily the way it is anymore. You know, like, it, it's always shifting and changing and it's it you have to be pretty adaptable to, to stick with it especially just with the way that technology advances you know so fast now that you know over the course of a year all of a sudden you know everybody's injecting music into themselves you know or something it's like you never you know something that you never even really thought of was possible is now the norm you know so um and Mike Bruno, Dumps as you call him, has his label Dead Broke Records. And if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of that label, you should definitely go and have a look at that right now and um, and see see all the great records they've got for sale there. But he must know, um, he must have good standing in, you know, how people listen to and buy the kind of music that you're playing. A lot of tasks fall on him to the point of, of probably uh, giving him, you know, undue stress just because he always, you know, like like I said, with booking and, and stuff like that he always just sort of fell into that role because it was something that he had already done like he had you know like even now it'll be like oh uh you know we need to email the the booking agent or whoever and dumps just does it because you know he spends all his day emailing bands anyway so it's like you know it kind of you know i'm sure to his chagrin that you know it just (laughs) it just sort of falls on him you know and even now having like you know having a booking agent it's like uh Dump still ends up booking half, you know, the shows himself or whatever. Or like if, you know, if they can't find somebody in this city, Dump's is like, oh, I, you know, I know somebody with a, you know, with a smaller venue than they would maybe, you know, be looking at or, or, you know, or, or, uh, you know, probably not a house show at this point, but, you know, something a little smaller or something. Uh, So you can be pretty self-sufficient with, well, everything that you're doing. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, uh, we were we were planning on taking uh you know a year or so probably calm down touring and and work on a record um for the first time in you know a couple of years where we weren't really planning to go out too heavy and you know and then all the virus stuff happened and we couldn't even be in the same building (laughs) anymore (laughs) so that kind of made it harder so this was really kind of the first time in a while that we were like okay like we're gonna even though we sort of rely on, you know, the, the money that we make touring to, to make a conscious effort to, you know, it forced some of us to, you know, think about a little bit differently about how we make our money at this point, you know, and I've just, you know, I've spent the last 10 years of my life just avoiding having a real job. It's, you know, <laughs> if I don't have to work, even if I'm poor, I'm, I'm more happy, you know. Have you started demoing stuff for that new record yet? Um, we not, I don't know that we're quite at that point. We, we had gotten together a few times and, and, you know, started hacking out some, some ideas. Um, I don't think we really have anything beyond, you know, a collection of like verses and choruses and stuff like that. Um, what, what's your process there? How do you write? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a, like we generally will come to, to a band practice writing session or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, generally Phil have a couple of riffs in mind and he'll sort of just start hacking out at them. And, 
you know, almost like a, like a back to the future, kind of like follow me for the changes sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and just start playing along and then he'll be like, Oh, you know, do this or that, or, you know, everybody will start throwing in their two cents as to, you know, how the, how the pieces should go. And then generally by the end of that, we'll have like a, you know, pretty rough semblance of a song. And then we kind of stack those up a, a bunch and then I'll sort of sit with Phil and, kind of go through the ones that you know the melodies stand out to me the most or whatever and then we'll start you know kind of hacking out lyrics and uh yeah i mean your vocal melodies are just so strong when you you know those are the (laughs) those are one of the biggest things of the sound i think and um that makes me wonder does the the melody tend to come before the lyrics for you yeah generally i don't really usually sit and and thank you by the way but um i don't usually sit and uh you know, write like lyrics out and then say, oh, what does this, you know, what do these lyrics go to? It's usually more the opposite. And, you know, I'll sit and listen to the song. And once I start finding the the melody that stands out to me, you know, oftentimes we'll start with, you know, kind of just mumbly, you know, placeholder sounds or words or whatever, like, you know, maybe like one line will pop out, you know, in my, in my kind of like thing. And then I'll sort of be like, all right, I can, I can start from here and, and then just sort of, you know, draw it out from, you know, from whatever the first couple of like sentences that pop out of whatever gibberish I'm kind of, you know, laying over it or whatever. Um, With recording, like we'll say, you know, oh, maybe we won't have Phil do it this time so he can, you know, focus on, not having to record or, you know, or just seeing how somebody else makes it sound. And we always just, it's, it's been so easy. Like, you know, Phil has a studio in his basement where we practice there. We can, we can, he can set mics up at the beginning of practice and we just practice. And by the end, everything we've done is on, you know, is recorded and recorded in a way that he can, you know, EQ it and, and, you know, make this louder and that, uh, you know, kind of stuff. And, you know, we'll practice and maybe, you know, come up with an idea or two. And that night, Phil's emailing us the, you know, the the tracks and I can sit and listen to it on, you know, my leisure and, and kind of think about the songs. And then, you know, I'll go sit, you know, we, we act, well, you know, we actually live together. So, you know, I can go down and be like, be like, oh, you want to work on some lyrics and, you know, we'll come up with an idea. And then we have, you know, I can just go, he'll set a mic up and, and record that you know so it might not all be at the same time but we can kind of hack out a demo pretty quick um you know overall and and then you know it makes it a little easier to sort of streamline you know the the songs like on you know on their own terms kind of and you're a graphic designer so i suppose that gives you so much flexibility to do that as well you know to plug those gaps yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, you know, I, like I said before, I, I, I pretty much just always as a function of being the one who could do it. I've always, you know, it's always sort of boiled down to me, uh, you know, to do whatever uh, artwork we needed. And, you know, and, and, I, and I've always enjoyed doing it. Um, and at some point I was just like, well, you know, I've done, you know, my own bands and, you know, probably a little bit of art for, you know, friends here and there. But at some point I was just like, I should just, you know, I'm already doing it for us. I should just see if other people want to do it and, and started trying to, you know, just get work. And, um, 
you know, was always the kind of thing that it was like, I can, you know, I'll just take on whatever work I can when I'm home. And, uh, you know, even to some degree, like, you know, now I have an iPad that I can draw on. And, you know, at one point I had a laptop and, uh, you know, I don't think I ever actually did it, but it was always in my head that I could, you know, I could do this on the road too. Like after a show, I could draw or whatever. I never wanted, you know, being on the road and actually doing that, you know, uh, <laughs> never really materialized, but theoretically I could, if I wanted to, um, clients is a bit of a dirty word, but <laughs> are there any companies that you've been working with making, making illustrations for, and are there, are there people that can just come at you with, you know, well, for commissions? Yeah, for sure. You know, I like doing pretty much anything, uh, that I, you know, feel I'm able to do. Um, you know, every once in a while I'll get like a tattoo design, which to me is a little redundant to, to pay twice for, but you know, some luckily for me, sometimes people just want something, you know, in my style. And so I'll do stuff like that. Um, I just recently did a couple of, uh, jobs for a, uh, like a toy store, uh, you know, like a oh, kind cool. of retro, uh, you know, action figure thing. And they do like a, uh, like a, like a toy show, you know, kind of, uh, like toy Comic-Con or whatever you want to call it, a showcase thing. And uh, I got to do some work for that. And that was fun because I, you know, do some like, like He-Man characters or whatever stuff that's sort of up my alley. You know, and I get a lot of weird little odds and ends here and there. And, you know, sometimes I'll get somebody who wants a, you know, a gift for their, you know, their partner or... And your artwork um, is just so synonymous with the band. Yeah, I mean, we've always, you know, I have my style and it's always pretty much been uh you know just kind of like oh yeah you know i can do it so i'll do it and and you know it just became the default aesthetic because that's you know <laughs> how how it just kind of shook out um and you know and i, I definitely you know I, I it's cool to to be able to have something like that like have people you know both on a musical and artistic level have someone you know look at something i've done and say oh i you know like i know who that is or, or, you know, or, or just to be able to appreciate it. Yeah. And you've certainly got that. I hesitate to use the word blessed, but you know, I, <laughs> I do, I do, you know, I do feel, you know, to some extent, you know, blessed by the universe to be able to, to, you know, even, even if, even if it's not, you know, uh, even if it's scary at times just to be able to do this and, you know, and, and, it's definitely a privilege, you know. I, I can't, I can't deny that. It's, it's not something that everybody. It's not an opportunity that everyone is afforded. Um, you know, I'm definitely grateful for it. Have you picked up any commissions over lockdown? Oh uh, yeah, I've actually been uh, weirdly busy. Um, I didn't, I really didn't think I would be getting much just with the fact that, you know, bands haven't been able to play and uh, stuff like that, and just you know, people, you know, just money being. Uh, you know, more of a concern in general for people. Um, but I do think, you know, in some ways, at you know, people people need their releases, you know, in times like this. So, you know, oddly enough, you know, I have, yeah, I've kept, I've kept like fairly busy. Honestly, probably more busy in the last couple of months than I had been in the last, you know, couple of months before that. Um, and what's the name of, of your, your company and how can people get in touch with you? Righteous Indignation, I, I go by on on that. Um, 
yeah and you know yeah i you know on instagram and, and twitter and all that stuff um how, how do you find dealing with social media because you know anyone would understand how everyone hates it but especially for a visual artist it's vital yeah yeah i mean especially you know for something like visual art you know you kind of have to be on instagram it's like where you know it's like where people find stuff like that for the most part i mean i'm sure there's probably other art centric social media too but you know nothing with the reach it beats tumblr to the pip now <laughs> yeah um i still kind of don't really do facebook i think you know it's i think that's kind of past its prime as far as that stuff goes and uh i try to have like somewhat of a twitter presence but i'm not really the type of person to just sort of blurt out my you know thoughts at the moment i'm you know more the type of person that spends 45 minutes like crafting you know a tweet or whatever to make sure i don't have any misspellings and i don't sound stupid <laughs> but i did real i did i have come to realize that people just say whatever dumb crap comes to their mind on twitter and maybe i should just do that so you know now every time i have a, a stupid you know stoner thought I'll, I'll i'll try and like be like oh I'll put this on twitter people like that stuff yeah it's really like life version two isn't it I have that thing all the time when I, I'll come back from seeing friends and I'll shut the door behind me in my living room and I'll just think, oh, fuck, I hope that, you know, that thing that I said didn't alienate that person or I hope that joke that I made, you know, didn't go go down completely the <laughs> yeah. wrong way. And I'll spend ages worrying about yeah. that. And now, and now you can do that, you know, for everyone to see. Exactly. <laughs> Lubrano, thank you so much for coming on here. No problem. Thank you uh, for having me. It was a lot of fun. So that was Jason Lubrano from Iron Chic on 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast. If you've been liking these podcasts, you can go and rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to them. And, well, just do that because that would be excellent. 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 Okay. Excellent. Go back to the doll queue. Please don't tell P from the pub because he'll judge me, but I don't mind. I've been paying my taxes on time I'm not central, not essential I've never worked for the NHS Yeah, I've clapped hands and I beat pants Put away the kitchen utensils now Don't let your P45 give you chills Because we need jobs We need 101 part-time jobs Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.